Welcome to the podcast of Apostles by the Sea Anglican Church in Rosemary Beach, Florida. You can find out more about us on our website at ApostlesByTheSea.com. Thanks for listening. Well, I am so delighted to be with you here this morning. I have never visited your congregation before, but Apostles by the Sea is near and dear to my heart. My congregation, Trinity in Thomasville, Georgia, prayed for you weekly as you participated in the recovery efforts following Hurricane Michael hitting this area. So this congregation is very near and dear to my heart from those weeks of praying for all of you. But I've also known and admired John and Ashley um, for about 12 years. My wife, Megan, who's here with me this morning, um, when we were in college at Florida State University, we used to attend a service that John led at St. Peter's in Tallahassee. Our first time attending that service, John and Ashley invited us out for pizza after the service. You all know this, but at that dinner, I discovered that John and Ashley exude this joy and warmth of love. God's love pours through John and Ashley. And that's really at the heart of what I want to talk with you about this morning. How we love people out of the love that we have received ourselves from God. So would you pray with me? The Lord be with you. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. Amen. I grew up in the self-esteem generation. In the 20th century, psychologists and sociologists made this astonishing discovery that our ability to love others is contingent on self-love. Sometimes the embrace of self-love went a little bit over the top. Al Franken used to do this bit on Saturday Night Live called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. Stuart Smalley was a ridiculous caricature of the sort of self-help cult of the early 90s with his perfectly coiffed blonde hair and his foppish clothes. He would open every sketch by looking into a mirror, st mirror, staring at himself and saying, I deserve good things because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> well, I want to set you at ease this morning. That is not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about self-love. The problem we face is that we have so few examples of what godly self-love actually looks like. So let me clear up a few misunderstandings before I go on. Self-love is not the same as being self-centered. It's not being self-indulgent. It's not self-exaltation. And it certainly is not self-pity. 
When Jesus was asked what is the most important thing we can do in our lives, he said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Many of us, when we hear this, totally overlook those last two words, as yourself. If we cannot receive the love of God and see ourselves from his perspective, we will never be able to see others from God's perspective and love them well. We cannot love God or love people unless and until we have received God's love for us. St. Thomas Aquinas defines love this way, and I love his definition. He says, love is willing the good of another. Love is not sentimentality or romance. Love is seeking the good of another. Jesus powerfully demonstrates this type of love for us when he died for us on the cross. God so willed the good of another, of us, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Love between human beings is meant to flow out of the love of God that has been given to us, that's been revealed to us in the human being Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for our sins. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. It is his love that is the source of our love. Our hearts were designed to run on God's love for us. It's the gas in our gas tank. But many of us don't receive and experience that love on a regular basis. We live in a fallen world, and sadly, our very selves have been distorted and twisted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. There are two fundamental lies we believe about ourselves that keep us from a healthy self-love that would enable us to love others well. The two lies we have been told are this. You are everything, and you are nothing. The first lie we're told is this. I am everything. We live in a culture of self-help and the power of positive thinking. Our culture tells us that we are the center of the universe. TV commercials appeal to our distorted, distorted sense of ourself that we can do it all, be it all, all the time. You know, TV commercials used to tell us um, what we need and what we want. But today, TV commercials tell us what we deserve. Do you remember the ad campaign for McDonald's? You deserve a break today? Well, not only do I deserve a break with some artery-clogging McDonald's, <laughs> I also apparently deserve monster energy drinks. I deserve $200 Beats by Dre headphones. Even L'Oreal thinks that me and Father John deserve the best hair color for all of our luscious locks. <laughs> the world wants to convince us 
that this is self-love. But self-love is not self-indulgence. The lie, I am everything, leads to overindulgence, which leads to emptiness, always seeking for more and never being filled up. If we try to love others with that lie implanted in our hearts, I am everything, we are going to love others in very unhealthy ways. We will use others. We will set ourselves up as idols to be worshipped and adored. Or worse, we will set ourselves up as little messiahs who are going to save and fix everything and everyone. Because if I am everything, then I'm all I've got, and I'm all you've got, too. When I was in seminary, I had a professor who made every student write out a hundred times by hand, which I had not done in a long time, we had to write out a hundred times by hand on a sheet of paper, I am not the Savior, and I know that Jesus is. Because Christians are not immune from making themselves messiahs. And when we do that, we do that knowing that we can't do it. We are going to fail. We are going to mess up and disappoint people. We can't be everything to everyone all the time. Instead of this cruel message that the world gives us to drive our obsession with perfection and never measuring up, our psalm this morning, Psalm 139, gives us a powerful vision of a God who is so big, so great, so passionate and unfailing in his love for us that he can rescue us even from the pits of hell. So would you turn with me to Psalm 139 in your bulletin, beginning at verse 5. Listen to what King David writes. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. What the psalmist is saying to us this morning is that God's love is chasing and pursuing after us wherever we go. There is literally nowhere we can go to escape his great love for us. His love is so great that we cannot comprehend it. The psalmist writes, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. What we need, what we desperately need, is a love that is bigger than our own if we are going to love people as ourselves. When we put God in the right place, we don't have to be everything for everyone. Human love has its limits, but God's love, God's love that has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit has no limits. You know, our world is full of people 
who think that they can save the world. But human love will always fall short. It's only when our love is sourced in the love of God that we can actually start to love others. It's only when we have access to everlasting love that our love can have a lasting impact. I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones describes the love of God. She calls it the never stopping, never giving up, unending, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. Isn't that beautiful? This is the love that can change the world. Not a puffed up, prideful and self-pitying love, but a love that is free to love the other because the self is secure in the Savior. In his book, God Loves Me and I Love Myself, Mark DeJesus writes this, people who love themselves properly give it out right away. They spend little time obsessing over their own life. Once love is received, it naturally goes out. They have settled love in their hearts, so it flows out freely. And I believe this is exactly what you all did so beautiful, beautifully in the wake of Hurricane Michael. Out of the love you had first received from God, you were able to love others freely and sacrificially as a testimony to the free love of God. So that's the first lie that we have to reject. The second lie is the inverse of the first, but just as destructive. This lie says, you are nothing. I grew up working on a farm in the summertime in South Florida, also known as hell. Um, but was God there? <laughs> yes, even in the pits of hell, he was there. But honestly, I loved working on a farm. Overall, it was a, it was a great experience, except having to deal with Joe. Joe was the number two at the farm, and Joe spent his entire day doing two things, playing solitaire on his computer in his air-conditioned office, and the second thing he did was riding out on his air-conditioned tractor to go and tell me the next thing that I had to do in the heat of the day. But Joe had nicknames for everybody on the farm, and it took him about a week to come up with a nickname for me, but he decided that my nickname would be Worthless. He would come driving out to the fields where I was sweating off about 10 pounds of my weight and say, hey, Worthless, go get those tomato steaks and stack them up beside the barn. Hey, Worthless, go do this. Hey, Worthless, go do that. For three summers, I was called Worthless nearly every day. All of us have had those type of people in our life who tear us down that tell us we are nothing. Maybe it was a boss, a parent, or even a spouse. And sometimes those negative tapes still play in our minds telling us that we are worthless, we are nothing. You know, lurking behind all the fears in this life, there's really only one fear. The fear that we won't amount to anything, that we won't be enough. It was the fear that got Eve and Adam to eat the forbidden fruit. They thought they weren't enough, and if they ate the fruit, they could become more like God, knowing good and evil. 
It was the fear that drove Cain to murder his brother Abel. Cain feared that he wouldn't be enough compared to his brother, that he was nothing compared to his brother. And as you read through the whole story of the Bible, the fear that we are not enough is the fear that has ruled every human heart. It's the fear that says, I won't be strong enough to protect my family. I won't be smart enough to pass the test. I won't be connected enough to get the job. I won't be liked enough to have friends. I won't be attractive enough to get a spouse. I won't be lovable enough for someone to love me. I won't be good enough for God to accept me. I won't be enough because I am nothing. This is the fear that runs all through the Bible and all through our lives. Jesus meets this fear not by telling us that we are enough. No, Jesus dispels this fear by saying, I am more than enough for you. The message of the gospel is this. You don't ever have to be enough because Jesus will be more than enough for you. God knows you. He knows all of your weaknesses and failings. The psalmist writes, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. God knows it all. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And still, he chooses you. Still, he pursues you to the ends of the earth. Still, he thinks about you all the time. King David writes, How precious precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Do you understand what David is saying here in the context? He is saying that God's mind is full of thoughts of us. He is thinking about you all the time. The God of the universe pays attention to you every moment of your life. He pays attention to when you get out of bed in the morning. In Psalm 139, King David reveals the heart of God that is searching, longing, completely consumed with love for his creations. For you. You aren't nothing. You aren't worthless. No, God says you are worth everything. You are worth even my life. The way we know the love of God is Jesus. The whole purpose of God becoming human, living among us, suffering, being tortured and crucified on Good Friday was so that we could know God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. When we start to see ourselves from God's perspective, it becomes possible to start seeing others from God's perspective. If we say we love God then we must love those who are made in the image of God. Imagine if I were to say to my wife, I love you, but I can't stand the sight of you. That doesn't make any sense, right? Well, if we're going to love God, we must love his creations, his image, ourselves and our neighbors. Each person you meet in your life is a wonderful work of God. His handiwork. 
We have to start seeing people the way that David saw himself in Psalm 139. He says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. It starts by us receiving that for ourselves. So wherever you are at today, I want you to know that God has created and called you, uniquely you. God wants to set you free from the lie that you have to be everything. He wants to set you free from the lie that maybe somebody told you in your life, that you are nothing. He wants you to know his love that gives everything for you so that you can share that love with the world. Do you know that? Do you know that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? That you are a wonderful work of a loving father? Do you know the love of God for you? I'm going to get very real here for a minute as I close. Could you say and fully believe the words of Psalm 139 while staring at yourself in the mirror? Could you say those words? I'm not talking like the Stuart Smalley bit, staring at himself in the mirror, trying to build himself up. But could you say those words like a child of God, declaring the truth about who God has created you to be? Could you look yourself dead in the eye and say, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works, including me, especially me, are wonderful. I know that full well. I want to encourage you to try that this week and then go and love your neighbor as yourself. To know the love of God for you, to be able to look at yourself confidently and say, I know that I know that I know that God created me and loves me and I'm going to go love my neighbor as I love myself. Would you pray with me? Father, you created us. You delight in us. You are searching after us. You know every movement of every part of our day. And you say over us, you are my beautiful child. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are my work of art. And I love you. Lord, as we receive your love, empower us by your spirit to carry that love to a world that so desperately needs it. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.